Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning, everyone, in Bryan College Station in the Central Texas listening area and in Palestine. This is Thaddeus Romanski, your general manager of Red Sea Catholic Radio. I'm very, very privileged to have in the studio with me today James Olson to review the life and legacy of President George H.W. Bush, whose funeral is being broadcast live on television, radio right now. We know that his funeral, is, uh, his burial is going to be taking place in College Station at on the Texas A&M campus tomorrow. And we know uh, that it's a topic of great interest to many, many Americans. Jim was up close and personal with the late president, and he's here to offer some of his personal reflections and also look at the president in terms of virtues, leadership, and what kind of a, a model he can be for us in that regard. Yes. Hello. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here again. We appreciate it. We know you've been evicted from your office for the last for the last week and you're pulling yourself away from papers and um, galley proofs for your book. So thanks for your time. You're most welcome. I want to just let you start with um, recapping your role in government service, specifically in the George H.W. Bush administration. What, What were you doing at that point in time? And recap your connection to President Bush. Uh, Yes, uh, I have been privileged to have many years of association with President Bush, and it's one of the great blessings of my life now that I have the opportunity to teach at the school with his name on it, the Bush School of Government Public Service. Meredith and I, my wife, served under President Bush when he was the director of the CIA, and later when he was vice president and president, I had the chance to brief him on some intelligence issues. But we really didn't get to know George and Barbara Bush until we came down here. And the way that happened was is that when President Bush decided to have a school of government with his name on it down here in connection with the Library and Museum, he wanted to make certain that intelligence was part of the curriculum because he's such a strong supporter and advocate of intelligence. He always has been. Mm -hmm. He called the director of the CIA, who was George Sin at the time, he said, I'm starting this new school of government. I want to have intelligence as part of it. Could you send me somebody? And I was fortunate enough to be chosen to come Mm. down here and do that. Okay. When we came down here and I started teaching classes in intelligence, I remember the first time that I actually saw the president. He had agreed to speak in one of my classes on intelligence. And he knew that Meredith and I had been under our cover a whole career. And I remember I was standing outside the classroom waiting for him to arrive, and I see him approaching from way down the hall. And from a distance, he yells out in a really loud voice, well, look who's come in from the cold. (laughs) And my my students thought that was pretty cool. That is very neat. And it certainly was. And then over the years, Meredith and I had the opportunity to spend time with George and Barbara Bush in their apartment here at dinner parties, uh, classroom meetings, conferences. It's been one of their really treasured memories we have of our time here that we we were able to get to know President Barbara Bush uh, very much better. One of the highlights, Thaddeus, was when President and Mrs. Bush invited Meredith and me to visit them at their 
summer home in kind of Monkport, and that was really uh, mm. unforgettable. That's that's a real special privilege that's not extended to just anyone. I mean, those are the, the, the closest confidants or VIPs that get to go out to be at Walker's Point. Yes. Um, man. Well, I think it's no exaggeration to say that President Bush loved us spies. Mm-hmm. And it was mutual because cause we loved him too. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, his tenure as CIA director also came at a really difficult point in the agency's history and the way that he um, handled that time also in, endeared him to the members. Can you can you just briefly talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, it certainly did. And you're right. That was a, a very difficult time for all of us in the CIA. We'd gone through the church commission and there were a lot of allegations about abuses by the CIA. We were beaten up. We were mm-hmm. battered by the press. We needed somebody to come in to kind of restore our morale, to give us a new sense of worth and purpose and direction. Mm-hmm. He came at exactly the right time because that's what he did. Yep. He put us back into business and feeling good about ourselves. And I'm sure that would have happened uh, with, with somebody else. Yeah, and I think it's it's no, uh, no mistake also that uh, Bob Gates was here as president for for a time, and what a what a, they they had a close they had had a close working relationship together, and the CIA was another uh, connection between the two of them. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, George Bush, I think, really wanted Bob Gates to come down here, and he had such a, a respect for for Bob and his talents, and Bob Gates really welcomed the idea of being able to associate himself with something with George Bush's name on it because he had great admiration for him as well. Well, for our younger listeners, let, you know, just a recap, if you haven't heard some of his highlights, you know, George H.W. Bush, he was born in 1924. He served in World War II as a Navy uh, pilot, youngest, uh, I think second youngest aviator in World War II. He was uh, in the oil business, offshore oil, kind of was a pioneer in that endeavor. Um, congressman from Texas, um, ran for Senate against Lloyd Benson, lost, mm-hmm. um, kind of was down on his luck, thought he was his political career was finished. He gets brought by President Nixon to be um, rep- you know, ambassador to the United Nations. Then he goes on to be, uh, <laughs> he gets some really unenviable uh, positions in this point in time. This is the 1970s. He's the Republican National Committee chair as Watergate is coming to a head and President Nixon decides to resign. Then we talked about his tenure as CIA chief uh, on the heels of Watergate in the wake of Vietnam. He kind of steps away from politics for a few years, then makes a run for the presidency in 1980. And to many people's surprise, there are even rumors that it was going to be President Reagan tapping former President Ford to be his VP. He decides to take President Bush as his running mate. And they had had they had crossed swords a little bit during the during the primary campaign, as you as you would expect. He goes on to serve eight years as vice president. And he's elected uh, in 1988, defeating uh, the Democrat Michael Dukakis. And he serves one term, uh, loses in 1992 to Bill Clinton, the Democrat. And then he kind of um, goes off into the sunset. It's, uh, uh, he, he actually looked forward to the life after the presidency. Um, he didn't want to 
to necessarily hang on to the reins of power. But he got himself involved in volunteering, which is something, a cause he promoted as president. And he actually uh, formed this close friendship with his former political rival, uh, Mr. Clinton. And then he helped, you know, he advised his son on his presidential campaign. Uh, He supported his other son, Jeb, in his run as governor in Florida. So he did stay involved in politics, but he he served uh, quietly the, the rest of his life, wouldn't you say? Jim, anything say, else you want to add to that recap of his no, life? No, he had a very zigzag career in many ways. In fact, a lot of the jobs that he took, his advisors said, don't do it. Don't mm-hmm. do it. It's going to ruin your political future. Going to the CIA is a good example. People thought that that was probably a career ender for him. But I yeah. think the common denominator and everything that President Bush agreed to do was he felt that call to serve. And he thought that each of those jobs gave him an opportunity to serve the things that he believed in. I really admire that in him. I don't think he was ever really ambitious in a cold sense. I think he simply wanted to do what was best for the country. I think that's one of the things we'll always remember about him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that in his post-presidential years that he was very devoted to the Bush School. I think he felt that that was an important part of his legacy. He didn't like that word, but he frequently told us that Probably the finest thing that he could do after being president was to prepare the next generation of young men and women to follow in his footsteps in some ways in serving the country. And that's what we have done at the Bush School. We are sending our graduates into really exciting and important jobs. Many are going into intelligence careers. And I think President Bush found particular gratification in knowing that his school was continuing to contribute to, continuing to, contribute to our our national security. Thank you. Now, Jim, you, I, I think his zigzag career, I think it's such an, a good model of perseverance, that virtue of perseverance. And you were on a few weeks ago to talk with Pam Marvin about courage. Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, you know, after him, they identified the virtue of courage as the midpoint on a scale. It, too much, mm-hmm. too much is rashness. Too little is cowardness. You've got to have that that midpoint, where do you see Bush 41 exemplifying that virtue of courage? We'd have to start a course with his World War II service. I mean, how courageous was it for him to serve at such a young age as a naval aviator, to take off from aircraft carriers, to go into combat, and then to be shot down and not know whether he'd survive, to see his crew members killed? I just am awe of someone who could do that at such an early age. Men he woke up thinking and praying about every day for the rest of his life, by exactly, the way. Exactly right. And something he felt very, very deeply, the loss of those people. He always felt a special affinity for people who had fallen in the line of duty. I heard him several times talk about the people in the CIA who had died in service of our country. And every time he talked about that, that is, whether it was in the classroom or in private, he teared up mm-hmm. because he felt so deeply the, the loss, the sacrifice of those people. And, of course, that's something that he personally exemplified. I think he demonstrated courage at almost every step in his career, first of all, by doing things that probably ab- objectively were not in his best political interests, but, again, that desire to serve – I think he showed a lot of courage at uh, various times in his career when he 
reached out to the other side, for example, when he proposed legislation that he probably presumed would be unpopular with a lot of the voters. Mm -hmm. I don't think he ever really was calculating in a political sense about what he was doing. Mm -hmm. I think he was someone who just had the courage to do what he saw as the right thing. Yeah, I think I'm going to probably catch some flack for this, but uh, setting the policy implications aside of the decision to go back on the note, the read my lips pledge, in that moment, he thought that was the right thing to do. That's what the country needed. He needed to come to a compromise and increase taxes, but hold the Democrats' feet to the fire on spending. Um, that didn't all work out the way he wanted it to, but he had the courage of his convictions, and it was a courageous moment. It's something that, like you're saying, he had to do what was nece- maybe unpopular, but what he thought was right, and he was doing it for um, selfless reasons. Absolutely, and he paid a terrible price for that. Yes, he did. I think that was a major factor in his defeat in the presidential election. Um, he was also famous at the time, uh, partly because of Dana Carvey's impression work on Saturday Night Live, for that phrase, wouldn't be prudent. And it was it always kind of struck me as a, a quaint phrase when I was a high school student. Um, but prudence is one of the four cardinal virtues. It's something that's kind of dismissed now. Talk about him as a model of prudence, too. I had the opportunity to see him in the classroom over and over again. And he talked repeatedly about uh, virtues and including prudence. And I think he really was able to instill in our students the sense that wisdom is something that can be acquired. We can learn from other people. And he certainly practiced that throughout his life. He was a very uh, person of good judgment. He thought things through very carefully. He was not rash at all. He certainly had the strength of his convictions, but he was a serious thinker and someone who I think was very careful in ensuring that anything that he did would be for the the greater good. It was never about him. He was refreshingly absent of ego, which is, I think, very rare in politicians. (laughs) Yes. It's, It's a rare trait in many, many human endeavors, for sure. So, Bush as a model for courage, as a model for prudence, as a model for service. How about him as a model for uh, family? I think that that was one of the great contributions that he made to all of us, that uh, example of a close-knit family. His family values were something he talked about all the time. He was really proud of his children and grandchildren and now even great-grandchildren. He talked about them a lot. He had a very, very special marriage to Barbara, and that was beautiful to see. And Meredith and I had the occasion several times to see the the intimacy, the little exchanges they had, the the shared humor, the shared laughter. Uh, They were just really a pleasure to watch as a husband and wife. Uh, Barbara was very quick and witty in her own right, and they played off each other a lot. Yeah, she was. It was really, really fun to be around them. I remember we were at a dinner party once, and George Bush gave up and gave a a very fine tribute, a toast to the guest of honor Mm -hmm. who was a visiting politician. And he felt pretty good about himself, I think, and he sat down at the same table where Meredith and I were, and Barbara Bush said, George, you're not done yet. Get Stand back up again. 
you didn't say anything about his wife. And I want you to say something about what a fine person she is. And George Bush said, yes, ma'am. He stood back up and <laughs> continued the toast oh, in great. honor of the spouse. How wonderful. Yeah. How wonderful. Um, what's the most important character trait or habit in 41 in, in George H.W. Bush that um, President Trump, future presidents should model, in your opinion, if you if you would speak on that? I would uh, identify humility first. George Bush was always told by his mother, George, don't brag, don't boast. It's not about you. Yep. I've never heard him take credit for anything personally. He always gave credit to his his subordinates, the people who worked for him. I really was touched by that. You think that someone who had had all the prestige and all the honors that he had would have a little bit of temp- temptation to be full of himself, but I never even saw a trace of that. Yep. He was always down to earth. He was someone who was always accessible, easy to talk to. He was a very kind man. But above all, I would say that he was a a very humble man. And humility, I think, was something that uh, he wore very, very well. Talking with Jim Olson here, wrapping up. Bush 41, service, courage, prudence, humility. Bring it a little closer home to wrap up, Mr. Olson. Um... This is a Catholic radio station. We're both Catholics. What leadership lessons, not guidance on faith and morals here, what leadership lessons can Pope Francis, our bishops, take from President Bush, this man we've described during this time of crisis? Well, certainly one of the essential ingredients of leadership is service. And President Bush had a tremendous heart to serve. And I think we can apply that to our faith life as well as to our personal lives and our public life. If you don't have that bug, if you don't have that call to serve, I think you're really missing out on life. And he really exemplified that. And that's a value that we continue to instill in our students at the Bush School. We want them to really understand why they're there. If you go into public service and you don't have a sincere heart to serve, you're never going to have the kind of fulfillment that George Bush had in his career and that we hope that our students will have in theirs. He really was there to make a difference in other people's lives. I think that's a component of our faith life, but also for anyone in dealing with other people. We're here to serve. It's not about us. And President Bush really was the best example I can think of uh, in that regard. And I I think for myself, I think that courage to make the hard choice to say the hard thing that's not necessarily going to uh, to play well, that might get you some slings and arrows, I think that's another crucial, crucial factor of leadership. Absolutely. And I think our current political leaders could really learn a lot from, from President Bush. President Bush was someone who was always courteous, always considered of others. He had a compassion. He never viewed it as warfare. He could work with both sides of the aisle very, very effectively. I think everybody admired and respected George Bush for his personal qualities. Jim Olson, professor at the Bush School. You have a new book coming out on counterterrorism. It's going to be with Georgetown Press uh, Spring Catalog 2018. That's right. Or 2019, excuse me. That's right. Okay, pick that up. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. God bless. Take
And we are back. And as I mentioned earlier, this segment of our show is going to be pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any phone calls. And again, uh, our guest this uh, morning is going to be Sister Miriam James Heidland, a uh, sister for SALT, uh, the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity. And I would now like to welcome Sister Miriam to the Roundup. How are you doing, Sister? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm delighted to be here. Well, as we're entering the season of Advent, I thought this was a prime opportunity to talk a little bit about Rejoice, the Advent Meditations with Mary, published by mm-hmm. Ascension, and your role in that. But before we get into that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself so they get to know you a little bit better? Yes, I'd be happy to. I am a member of the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity and Salt Community, and I joined the community 20 years ago. I live in Corpus Christi, Texas, so I'm your neighbor way to the south there. And, uh, yeah, I grew up Catholic and, you know, did that whole thing, but I never really fell in love with Christ, and I ended up just having a lot of trauma in my life and a lot of brokenness and uh, played Division One volleyball in college and wanted to work for ESPN and had all these dreams in my life, but I also had a tremendous amount of darkness and brokenness as well, and went through a very, very deep and very long conversion. And um, right after college, I heard uh, Jesus Christ call me to be his bride. And so it was a very radical conversion. And so it's been a long journey of healing in my life, of restoration and and sobriety and hope and and peace and a process that is still taking place even to this very moment. And so I know uh, my main apostolate is, I, well, actually I have two. I'm a consultant to my general superior, but I also travel and speak across the nation full-time at various conferences and retreats and things like that. So um, that's why I'm going to do that. So it's just, like, I also have a podcast called Abiding Together that I host with two women. And so, yeah, a lot of beautiful things happening. When you had your conversion experience and were hearing this call, how did you discern what community you felt most that you belonged to? Well, for me, God made it very easy for me. <laughs> it's not, it was not typical at all. But when I heard God call me to religious life to be his bride, I also had a very distinct interior knowledge that it was to this community. The priest that mentored me, who was really a, a cause for my conversion, was a member of this community. And um, I, I was so fragile at the time. I mean, I, I laugh now. I, the women coming into religious life now are light years ahead of where I was 20 years ago. It's beautiful. But for me, I was barely going to Mass on Sunday and just had received this incredible call from God. And so he made it very easy for me. Uh, and I, you know, it's a, that it was to this salt community. So um, I love religious life and the other religious communities as well. But I know this is the one that's for me. So. <laughs> If asked, how would you describe the charism of your community as it differentiates from some of the others, perhaps? I would very, you know, distinctly and succinctly uh, define our charism as being a, a family ecclesial team. So we actually serve with our own priest and our own laity. So we go uh, and serve together at a parish or for a diocese of the teams. 
and it represents how the Trinity lives, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each distinct, right, but one family. So each of us in our distinct vocations serve together as one family. We have a Marian Trinitarian spirituality, so we all of us consecrate ourselves to Jesus through Mary. And so it's very distinct in that regard. Um, we know we don't serve missions that don't, our priests are not at. And so people always, when they find the priest, they find the sisters. And when they find the sisters, they'll find the priest. And so it's a very beautiful way to serve the Lord. I uh, am always in awe of people that have found their niche in a community. And uh, in our culture, we have a struggle with this notion of commitment. But I think that uh, this is one of the reasons we have the struggles with marriage that we do is because we don't emphasize commitment. And it's wonderful to talk to someone like you who has found their place and made that commitment for life. Mm-hmm. Well, amen. Yeah, thanks be to God. And I think it is commitment's hard. Love is difficult. A love is beautiful, but it's very difficult because you are constantly being purified and transformed and pouring out yourself for the other. And right now in society, I, think, I love technology and I love social media, but there's this advent of FOMO of missing out, a fear of missing out. And so there's a huge break in a desire to commit because quote-unquote, something else might come along, or just in our own personal wounds. Many of us come from divorced families or things like that, and we say, man, I would never want to make a commitment. I would never want to hurt my kids the way my parents hurt me. And so there's these areas of woundedness, so we live out of fear instead of living out of hope and trust that God will provide the grace that we need at the time. Um, I would say if you're considering getting married, and that person's a worthy person, and they're going to lead you closer to God, and they're going to be a good spouse and a good parent, I say marry them. <laughs> you know, if you hear the call of God calling you, go and see. Go to a seminary and see if you're a man. Go to a convent and see if you're a woman. And just go and see what happens. And take the next step. It's just baby steps, but just take the next step. Uh, I think a lot of people are living in paralyzed fear out of what might happen versus, you know, encouraging and opening ourselves to the grace of God to see what will happen. Thank you for that. Uh, again, we're talking to Sister Miriam James Heidland, and the topic for today is uh, your role in the uh, uh, journal Rejoice, Advent Meditations with Mary. How, how did your role in this come to be? Oh, I love this series. I love what Ascension Press is doing with it. And so they've taken a, Father Mark Toops is a wonderful, wonderful priest and a wonderful man and hands down probably the best Ignatian meditation leader I've ever met in my entire life. And so he did a series for Ascension a few years ago called Aramus, which is, you know, learning how to pray. And so they took the same kind of similar format and brought it into the Advent season of journeying with Mary. And so I'm a very good friends with Father Mark Toots, and I'm also very good friends with Father Josh Johnson, the other priest on the series as well. And so they invited us out there, you know, led by Father Mark to kind of delve into these meditations together. And it really transformed me. Even to this day, even the filming of it, I go back to the lessons that I learned, what Father Mark was imparting to us. And so I, I can't wait to say enough good things about it. It's just such a beautiful journey. Advent, such a beautiful time in the church, this you know, time where we prepare for the coming, for the arrival of Christ. And so, you know, it's a brand new year. This is a brand new liturgical year. There's new graces, new blessings. Everything's made new. And so it's a tremendous time for us to kind of stop and go deep within and embrace Christ who comes to us so vulnerable and so little. And, you know, just to reveal the, oh, the, our, the areas of our hearts that are dark, the areas of our hearts that are 
like the stable that are inhospitable or that need cleaning, where Jesus, you know, he chooses to be born there and his desire to make all things new. So it's beautiful. I'm honored to be a part of the project. I can't really say enough good things about what they're doing there. Now, Father Toops is the one who compiled the book and the reflections and things. What was your role? My role is I'm more in the film series, and so we have a general, like you'll see some, some videos that are available, so I'm doing some of the weekly meditations and also just the initial reflection um, discussion. So you'll see both Father uh, Josh Johnson and I in that part as well. So we're kind of filling in, uh, just, you know, kind of filling in the discussion and the reflections to kind of give the listeners, to give the viewers a bit more to kind of ponder and to kind of see how this whole thing works. So we laughed a lot. It was great. We, we cried. We laughed. We had a great time. It was just such a wonderful experience. So the best way to get the most out of this is not only to just buy the book, but also to mm-hmm. watch the videos and engage the entire Advent process in this uh, reflection. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The videos add a lot. And, you know, when you compile that with a journal where you can record your own reflections, the journal is beautiful itself. It's got beautiful art and just some really great, um, questions to ponder, you know, our lady ponders. And so to, to ponder and allow Christ to speak to the depths of us in this kind of, you know, dark and quiet time of the year, such a great, yeah, such a great resource. And uh, as people journey through Advent and um, take the time to watch the videos, to record their own reflections that are brought on by going through this, what is the hope for outcome? What would you like people to consider the goal of this? I think a deeper encounter with Christ for sure. And just as you journey through the month with with Mary, you know, you see her at various stages of her life where although she was, you know, sinless, we believe she's immaculate conceived, she doesn't she doesn't know everything. So she's a person like you and I, and she's entering into new parts of her life that she's never navigated before. Everything from the angel visiting her to having to tell Joseph that she's pregnant to this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem when she's very, very pregnant and, you know, not having any room in the inn and just her, her just heart of trust in the Lord, of being willing to surrender of, even though it's difficult knowing that God has good things in store and not kind of sugarcoating any of that. Our lady doesn't sugarcoat anything. She's totally open to the Lord and totally honest. And it's just incredibly beautiful. So I think what it does is I know for me, it really challenged some of my own uh, areas of my life where I don't trust God or areas where I'm broken, where I don't, you know, allow his heart and his grace and his light to penetrate my soul. So it's really great for, for every single one of us. You know, there's always areas of our hearts that Jesus wishes to speak to in deeper levels to heal us. Because what he's doing in Advent and what he's doing at Christmas time is he's showing us what it means to be human. That he comes to us vulnerable and little and open and honest, and he has no self-defense mechanisms. He's not putting on a show. He's not performing. He comes to us as he is, and we see that all the way to the culmination of the cross, where he's stripped naked for us, and he gives his life for us. So Christ is always showing us how to be human, and the Advent season is a huge key of showing us how to be human, how to be authentic, and how to be um, in love and united with Christ. I think that's what I found so fascinating about the journal, is taking the perspective of Mary, because it allows us to 
pinpoint the times that we struggle with our faith. Uh, not that she struggled with her faith, but when we're looking at our faith, the humanity of Mary and the serious situations that she was experiencing, you know, as we journey with her, gives us a balance to reflect that when we struggle, even with, you know, some of the things that are related to preparing for Christmas or any of these things as we're going through Advent, gives us an opportunity to put our fears, our trepidations into context that uh, that whole focus on Mary helps us to see ourselves in a different light. Oh, definitely. Yes, definitely. And it reminds us that we're not alone. You know, that we come from a rich history of saints who are still alive, who are more alive than we are, and that we are never alone, and we can always ask for help. And God gladly shows us our place of where we belong. And yeah, we all of us have some dark stories in our life, some dark, sorrowful mysteries, but it's when we continually come to the Lord in honesty and, like you're saying, allow Him to shine His light into us, that His presence is made known. Advent has always been, uh, at least in my lifetime, a, a time of reflection. Uh, mm-hmm. And in our culture, it's become less about reflection and more about just preparing for Christmas as far as a materialistic aspect of it goes. Why mm-hmm. should Advent be important for us as Catholic Christians as a time of reflection, as a time of penance? How would you uh, say that? Well, it's because it's really at the heart of like what, we, what we're mentioning, like the heart of what it means to be human. The gifts are good. I mean, we give gifts really in, in commemoration of Christ, of the wise men who came to Jesus bearing gifts. And Christ is the gift this season. And so there's a beautiful thing about exchanging gifts as signs of, of belovedness, as signs of affection, you know, as a signs of, of gifts to one another. But ultimately, it's Christ who's the gift. And we know intellectually that there is nothing on earth that we could ever give each other or that we could ever receive that will ever satisfy us. So we spend a lot of time and a lot of money at times kind of getting things that really ultimately never satisfy, which is the true you know, meaning of the season is the, the Christ, the everlasting gift, the eternal gift. And so if we would do well, really, as Christians, and I think our hearts would be a lot more peaceful if we could really make a decision to enter into a rhythm of Advent, of prayer, of, of choosing to give the gift, of choosing to be kind, choosing you know, to go to confession, to allow Jesus to come and heal us, and to really make it an intentional time. Because otherwise, we'll, we will get swept away by the world, and you need this, and you need more of this, and you have to do this, and, and that's actually not true. <laughs> I know many families who choose to give one gift to their kids, and then they do family time, or they volunteer at a shelter together, or they, they have these family traditions where it's beautiful in and of themselves, and it's also a reminder of what matters most. And it's, uh, it's very easy to lose sight of what matters most. And when we do that, we become very unhappy. And um, really what God is trying to do is he's trying to remind us of, of who we truly are as his sons and daughters. That makes me think uh, this journal is a wonderful personal tool for the journey through Advent. But mm-hmm. do you see it being used by families to draw the families closer into the spirit of Advent? 
Oh, I think you could easily do that. There's easy ways you could modify it or you could ask the questions as a family together, maybe at dinner, if you have family dinner or if you have Advent is going to be a time of maybe some family together time where you put all the devices away and spend some time together. And it's very interesting when you ask questions to see, you know, how that strikes people in the family. And, you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, I know how how so-and-so would answer that. And then we're quite surprised when we see it's something else. And so it's a great way to journey together, to pray together. What it's a what a beautiful yes, certainly, what a beautiful journey to make together as a family or as a Bible study group or as a women's or a men's group and journey together as, as a community. Because that's what it means to be Christian, right? We have to we journey together as a community, as a fellowship. And uh, that fellowship, of course, includes Mary, because the one of the goals of the journal is to grow into a closer encounter with Mary throughout this season. Mm-hmm. Is there something yeah. in your life that inspired your sense of um, a need for this sort of project in the first place? Well, I'm I I'm always in need <laughs> of continued conversion, and I always want to grow closer to Jesus and Mary. And I often share many times in my own story of, you know, there was a time in my life where I just got on my knees before our Blessed Mother, and I said, I need to know you. Like I can't do this anymore. Like I've heard about you, and to me, you're just a one-dimensional statue, and I don't know you, and I can't even relate to you. And I desperately need to know you. I because ha- you're a real person. So I have to know you. Please tell me who you are. And it was that prayer that I made many years ago that I've made it many times since. And like I said, to be quite honest, it was broken up in a very beautiful way, even preparing for this film project, for this Rejoice series. I'm learning her heart more deeply. So relationships, lovers, people that you love, whether it's romantic or it's a friendship or it's a family love, you always want to grow closer. You always want to you know, hear more about the other. You always want to be with them. And so that's the way that God is with us. He's always drawing close to us. He, he just loves us. And he's always delighting in us to, to pour forth himself upon us and to heal us and to set us free. So there's really no end to it. And that's the beautiful thing about God, that there's just no end to the beauty that he lavishes upon us. And I think this is something that I think is worth remembering that in getting to know Mary better, Ultimately, the goal is always to get to know Jesus better, but who better to get to know Jesus than his mother? Um, Oh, definitely. And uh, how does drawing closer to Mary enhance our anticipation of Christmas, uh, of the Incarnation? If we get to know her, if we get to know her better, how does that lead us to greater appreciation of the Incarnation? Well, she's the one who knows Jesus best. I mean, she gave, she gave him half of her DNA, which is a fascinating thing to think of. And she always leads us closer to her son. You know, she's the one who's, she's full of grace. She's full of life. She's full of beauty. You know, her heart is broken wide open. And she, she's the fullness of, of maternity, of motherhood, of discipleship. So there is no better person to learn about Christ from than his own mother who only leads us closer to her son. She's just, she's beautiful. She's glorious. She's absolutely amazing. And it's always fascinating to me to think about the fact that she was extremely young at this time. And yet she had this Mm -hmm. grace to accept, to simply 
say yes. And I think that's an encouragement to us that when we are feeling doubt or hesitancy, that God just asks us to say yes and to trust him. And I think this is one of the things that I think we can gather from journeying with Mary in this journal. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's the hallmark of our life is the continued yes to the Lord, even when we don't always know what's going to happen. We do know from what God reveals about himself is that he is a God. And no matter what happens, he will always, always make crooked ways straight. He loves us. So, yes, definitely. Uh, it's a continued yes. It's a continued learning to trust him in the areas of our hearts that are broken, where he gladly reveals his heart for us and who he is. How would you describe imaginative prayer? And how is this one of the aids for um uh, our spiritual life, especially in this age that's so filled with distractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, imaginative prayer is an Ignatian a practice from Saint Ignatius, and it's part of the rich history of the Church. I mean, obviously, it even predates him of using a faculty that God has given us to place ourselves in real situations, in the Scriptures, in the lives of the saints. And so, what it does is it helps draw out the fullness of the story and. It can be different for people, and sometimes people are like, oh, I don't really imagine well. But it's quite amazing when we place ourselves in the story, say, for example, in the nativity, you place yourself in the stable, and you just call to mind, like, what does it smell like? What does it feel like? What is it like to be in the presence of Joseph and Mary as they hold a child? What do the animals look like? I mean, it's so rich. Even myself, you know, as I delve more deeply into it, I, I know spiritual masters who do this all the time, and their prayer lives are just absolutely captivating. So yes, and it does require attention, but it does pull pull out the fullness of our imagination, which is a great faculty, which is different than fantasy. So fantasy is making up something that doesn't exist. But in imagination, this faculty that God has given us, He's given us to that so we know Him, so we can place ourselves in this living reality, and He can speak to us. It's profound. It's absolutely profound. Again, we're talking to Sister Miriam James Heitland, and her role in the uh, journal for Advent, Rejoice, Advent Meditations with Mary. And um, right now we were talking about imaginative prayer. And Advent is, especially with the stories of the um, Annunciation, the stories of the Visitation, the story of the journey to uh, Bethlehem, those are all stories that lend themselves to this form of imaginative prayer, would you say? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. It's, it's, they're some of the best stories to immerse ourselves in. Yeah, it's really a beautiful, beautiful journey that we're about to make this Advent season. One of the um, things about this journey, uh, journal is that uh, this is probably something that most of our listeners have not done before. Uh, we're, you know, we have Advent calendars, we have Jesse trees, but really taking the time each day, work through a reflection on the season. So what would you say are some of the unique elements of this particular journey that uh, our listeners would expect if they... Uh, participate in this? Oh, I think they're going to be pleasantly surprised just at how beautiful it is. And it's true. There's no better time really than Advent or like say Lent as well 
where we can kind of just set some time aside and make an intentional journey with Mary. The, the f- reflections are beautiful. The, the journal, like I said, itself is, is, is beautiful as well. So I think they'd be pleasantly surprised at just what it lends to and what it, what it leads to in the human heart and how it brings about healing in Christ. When um, we try to differentiate between the secular view of this season and the Catholic Christian view of this season, how would you tell our listeners to deal with attention because there's expectations on one side and then there are the true expectations of the season as far as we're concerned as Christians. How do we deal with that? I think the most important thing is to attend to what's most important first. <laughs> so the most important part is is our soul, right? This journey that we're all making with Jesus. And so that we're setting time aside to be with him, like we talked about, where we're spending time with him, we're listening to him, we're, you know, going to confession this Advent, we you know, maybe taking up a practice of daily mass or something in our life where we're putting first things first, we're putting Christ first. And then when we do that, then we can see the other things according to what they are. And there's, yeah, there's beautiful parties and things like that. But I just want to say, you don't have to go to everything. And I think society tells us you have to do this. You have to be busy. You have to, and you don't. Nobody has to. That's a, something that society puts upon us. You can choose like one or two holiday parties that you really want to go to, and you can say no to the rest of them. You know, so there's ways of the ways that we can also free ourselves to really listen to um What's most important, I think family time, especially during the Advent season, is very important as well, so that we're not sacrificing that for quote-unquote activities, but we're really making this time something beautiful and meaningful, which it richly is. When you were working on the videos for this, was there something that you got out of just the preparation for those that was surprising to you that... uh, you hadn't really thought about in this light? Oh, yes, definitely. I think, as I mentioned, just even the filming of it, um, the scene where Mary has to tell Joseph that she's pregnant and he knows it's not his child. And that I'd never really placed myself in that scene of as a woman, what that would be like and how much she loved Joseph and how much he loved her. I really uh, just, I wept over it. It was just such a hard thing to imagine and having, having her, you know, watch him just, take his time to make that decision. That would have been so incredibly difficult as a woman uh, to, to deal with that. And so that really, you know, was one of the several things, but it was a, one of the main things that really broke my heart open of just her, her, you know, willingness to trust God and not grasp after Joseph, but to let him go and to let him make that decision, trusting that he was a good man and that God would bring all things to fulfillment. So yes, it was, like I said, I've thought about it so often since then, and it's certainly a lesson that I take with me in my own heart, my own reactions of when I want something to happen or I want it to go a certain way, to not grasp at it, but to turn to the Lord and trust with an open and surrendered heart, which is what Mary does. And I think this is where that beauty of the imaginative prayer comes in. Listening to you describe that process for you uh, in a new way of looking at that it's you know placing yourself in the situation and imagining what would Joseph have felt when she comes to him mm-hmm. to announce she's pregnant and then her anticipation mm-hmm. of how he's going to respond because she has no way of knowing. Yeah. And she just exactly. has to trust. I know. And yes. those things we don't even think of. Yeah, definitely. And so does he. 
Joseph has to trust as well. And so you just see how God ministers to him as well. So, yeah, it's profoundly beautiful. And that's just one of the several things that the, the reader will journey through this Advent. It has been wonderful talking about this journal and talking about your part in this. And uh, I hope our listeners get as much out of this as uh, you uh, have put into it. And I want to remind our listeners that next week, Jean Wilhelm will be your host. And as you are contemplating how to give to God your, your time, talent, and treasure, always round up. Since you wait.